0: Have you ever wondered who exactly you are? We are more than our name, our job title, or perhaps how we're viewed in our personal lives. Whatever part of the world you're listening to this podcast from, today's episode is going to stretch your mind like it did mine. As we expand our field of view from our individual schools or workplaces to our cities to go far outside of where we operate on a day-to-day basis, to think on a different level than we usually think about ourselves or those around us. We're going to use a brilliant article written by author and former National Geographic Learning Consultant Andre Headland, called Learning Cosmos, A Voyage into the Learner's Universe to help us take our imaginations on a trip where we'll consider the multitude of principles, theories and frameworks that address learning and compare them to the expanding universe, different spheres, each one influencing the others. Today, Andre will look at neuroscience and psychology and bring together principles about cognition, emotion, attitudes and beliefs, motivation, learning design and context. Many of the topics we've been talking about on this podcast for the past three years into an illustration that resembles the universe so we can see how we fit into our world from a different point of view. And Andre's hope is that this learning cosmos angle can help students, teachers, schools, families, and policymakers admire and reflect on the amazing universe surrounding our learners. Welcome back to the neuroscience meets social and emotional learning podcast for episode number 205. I'm Andrea Samadhi author and educator from Toronto, Canada now in Arizona. And today's guest is an expert in education, the science of learning, neuroscience, psychology, pedagogy, and the methodology behind how we learn. If you're interested in neuroscience and learning, which I'm sure you are, if you've been tuning into our podcast, I know this episode will expand your thinking like it did mine, as we hear from Andre's perspective, why neuroscience alone cannot tell us how we learn. We must look at psychology and education for these answers. But next, he takes it a step further with an empowering, mind-boggling thought. Imagine this, if you will. The cosmos is within us. We are all made of star stuff. We're a way for the universe to know itself. Astrophysicist Carl Sagan said that, and this quote opens up Andre's article. And it took me back to the day I was first introduced to this topic of neuroscience before I knew how the brain and learning were connected. I was mind boggled. I had many questions. How in the earth, pun intended, Is our learning connected to the cosmos? Wait, what is the cosmos again? It's been a while since I studied the planets, even though I did teach ninth grade science for a semester, but my knowledge here is limited as I never really got into Star Trek or those out of space shows. So, what does it mean when he says the cosmos is within us? I've been wrapped up in the brain and neuroscience for the past few years, and I had to look up what exactly this means. The funny part of researching and coming up with some questions for Andre to help us to dive deeper into this topic was that I shared on LinkedIn that I was looking forward to our interview as I spent Friday and Saturday night reading Andre's new book, The Owl Factor, reframing your teaching philosophy. And Greg Link, who I've mentioned before on this podcast, who took Stephen Covey's seven habits book to great heights, commented on the post and got me to think even harder about the questions I was going to come up with. I don't think there are any accidents in life, and when Andre caught Greg's attention, I felt like I'd better dive deep into this topic and see if we can all reframe our teaching philosophies with this new perspective. Let's meet Andre Headland and take this voyage into the learners universe. Welcome Andre, all the way from Brazil and Andre, we've got a good number of listeners from Brazil. And after reading your article, it really made sense to me, showing how someone in another country can hold so much passion for this topic and look at something like learning from a different angle. So thank you so much for contacting me and sharing your work with all of us today to look at learning this new way.
1: Well, thank you very much, Andrea, it's such a pleasure for me to be here, actually, because, you know, as as you can tell, I'm passionate about learning and teaching, and I feel like I have a lot to contribute, I think, especially after my master's and, you know, being exposed to so many different theories and principles about how we learn, how the brain works, how the mind works, and I'm happy to share.
0: Well, thank you so much, and your passion absolutely shines through. It's it's <laughs> undeniable, which is what made me, Great. you know, fast track and and read your book and get everything done because uh, I saw how your passion was shining through. I'm like, let's get Andre on here and 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 dive into this um and so so andre this podcast is the neuroscience meets social emotional learning podcast as you know and i clearly remember when i made that neuroscience sel connection how on the earth did you make the connection with learning and the cosmos
1: (laughs) well you know i'm a geek so let's start there right i've uh, i've always loved science fiction and I've always been fascinated really by, you know, how the universe works and uh, science in general. I I always wanted to understand how things work. And I remember that when I was, um, so I was studying uh, in the UK at the University of Bristol. I had a lot of literature to go through, you know, I had a lot of books and papers about learning. And I remember thinking how cool, how wonderful would it be for, you know, uh, educators to have access to the literature that I have here, the stuff that I'm studying here. And then a couple of years, maybe one year after when I was back in Brazil, I I felt like, okay, but how can I make it available in, uh, I don't know, maybe an easier way, something that, you know, (laughs) teachers can relate to. And um, at the time, I, I was reading Stephen Hawking's book, A Brief History of Time, the illustrated version and uh i think it was a master when it came to analogies and explaining very complex things using you know metaphors and uh, concrete examples and um so that's probably how the the analogy came to me first you know i said well i want uh, to analyze learning from different perspectives different spheres of influence and i think that's very similar to how we look at the universe. Because we can focus on the planet, we can focus on uh, the solar system, for example, or we can even go further to, you know, the intergalactic space, and and we can look from the perspective of a whole galaxy or even more galaxies together, a cluster of galaxies, and and the more we we travel, the more we explore different spheres, the more we realize how tiny we are, you know, and how much more we have to learn, and then I think that's how. It came to me. I said, Well, I think this fits. I think this, this is actually a very good match because uh, the universe is uh, intrinsically complicated and fascinating. And so is learning. I think learning has so many different layers and levels that we try to, I think we end up oversimplifying the learning process, but we need to have a more holistic view of how learning takes place. And, and that's uh, how the learning cosmos was born, I think.
0: Well, this is great. I love it. And uh, it's definitely made me think a lot because I did not watch those out of space shows. Were you into Star Trek and all that? Oh,
1: the- yeah, I'm a huge fan of Star Trek, even more Star Wars. Actually, I really like Star Wars. Yeah, I have I- it all, uh, Yoda t shirt and <laughs> all of that.
0: What yeah. What was it about those shows? Because I did not get into that. What was it that drew you in?
1: Yeah, I think for me, it was uh, the possibility of, um, you know, changing my reality or, or thinking about uh, potential worlds or, or universes that are very different from the one I'm living in, right? And since I, you know, I, I wanted to explore my creativity, I guess. I wanted to understand uh, other people's reality, and that felt like a, a very good way to do it because, you know, when you watch Star Trek or Star Wars or any science fiction uh, movie, or when you read a book, everything is very, very different, you know, you have other beings from different planets, and they have uh, spaceships, and they have uh, different types of weapons, and, uh, you know, the types of government, everything is very, very different, the animals, the food that they have, and I was always fascinated, I always wanted to understand culture. And I felt like those sci fi movies, they they brought a whole new level of, of different culture, right? to me. And, and and I don't know, maybe it's because I'm a geek. Like I said, it's just interesting to, to think of, of different things from a very different perspective. And sci-fi can do that for us, right?
0: Yeah, I love that. When you step yeah. back and look at something from a different angle, you see so much. And I had honestly never looked at learning from this angle. And it yeah. made me think. I went back and there was this one interview I did with this guy called Nick Halleck and um he actually went out into space as a civilian and he also went to um the bottom of the ocean and sat on the the titanic and in his interview he's got this video that kind of um narrows in on him as a young kid he's in his home and then it goes out it pans out and made me think of it i want to see if i can put a clip in this because it 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 showed that um he was ill when he was a young boy and he was stuck in his house and he was studying these encyclopedias to expand his mind and then the video um pans out all the way from watching him in the window of his home all the way into the the vast part of the universe and it just reminded me of this like we're gonna take a voyage now and i think well look at the voyage took in those encyclopedias that's kind of like what he was doing as a kid and then as an adult he lived it out you know with all he he made this list of things he wanted to do and so it kind of reminded me of that
1: you know this so yeah you know there there is this uh i think what you mentioned is really important andrea because i really like the idea of uh exploring you know so this idea of, of uh, being an astronaut, for example, or, or a diver or, you know, a, a marine explorer or whatever you want to call them. Uh, somebody who goes into, you know, the unknown, let's say, and tries to um, identify similarities and, you know, synthesize things. And, and, you know, until very recently, we didn't even know uh, much about uh, the universe, our own cosmos, right? Uh, it's been maybe a couple of hundreds of years since we you know, invented the telescope and then we could actually look up you know, and, and in the sky and see different planets and different, even different galaxies and things like that and started wondering. So I like this idea very much that there's much more for us to unravel. Carl Sagan used to say that, you know, yeah. there's always something to be known, something to be discovered. And I think that's fascinating.
0: Yeah, that just reminds me like we could keep going on tangents away from from the questions that I've crafted (laughs) for you here. But it just reminds me as we're learning and as I'm I'm working on these podcast episodes, I realize how little I know. And yours, it really stumped me like if, if it took me a while to get back to you, it was because I don't know this topic at all. And I thought, how what questions can I ask him? So it took me Friday (laughs) and Saturday night, really thinking about this. And so that's why I want to make sure that we go slow, and we take our time with the connections needed, because I don't have them. And so I know, you know, that you're gonna fill me in on this. But where do we begin? What is the science of learning? What should we all know about genetics, epigenetics? for ourselves, yeah. our children, and our students, and what does this mean for the future?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's definitely a great question. Uh, you know, the science of learning is this transdisciplinary area that looks at learning from multiple perspectives, uh, especially uh, from cognitive psychology, neuroscience, and other areas, you know, other branches of psychology as well, social psychology, developmental psychology, the psychology of individual differences. And um, so that means that it's not just one area, uh, you know, investigating what uh, what is out there about learning. And I like that because it makes it more, I don't know, solid, let's say. So the knowledge that we can get from the science of learning, it's kind of checked by other people from different areas. And I like that because it gives it more strength in a way. And, uh, and I feel like every teacher should know more about the science of learning because, uh, or educator and even anyone interested in learning, you know, for that matter, because we're all learners, we're lifelong learners, we're learning all the time, we should know how the brain works, even if only the basic principles, I think, because maybe we don't want to be experts in that we want to understand, for example, that the brain is highly plastic, we're always making connections we're creating new synapses as we talk right now. You know, we are changing our brain constantly. And but also there's the emotional side that you discussed so well, you know, the social and emotional learning part. We also have to understand that. So neuroscience alone doesn't hold all the answers. And I feel like a lot of people are pushing that agenda. Like, you know, there's something based on neuroscience and it's going to revolutionize the world, but you have to check with the other fields as well, right? That's very important. And what should we know about epigenetics and genetics? And I think um, Howard Gardner, who who's probably somebody very uh, popular among your listeners, you know, he's the one who talked about uh, multiple intelligences. And and even though he's uh, gone back and revised his theory, but anyway, he says that he believes that everybody in education should know something about how the brain works, how the mind works, and how genetics Works because um, we know from research, and I think one of the big references there is Robert Plowman, who's um, an American psychologist and uh, he's written many books. One of his uh, most popular books is uh, Blueprint, I think. And he says that most of what, you know, at least 50% of, of who we are, the things we are capable of, you know, the things we like, everything about us, that's genetic, right? And if that's genetic, we have to understand that there are some things we can do about that, and there are some things that we cannot do, unless we start editing, you know, our our genome with uh, technology that exists, like CRISPR, for example. We can actually edit uh, genes nowadays. But if if we understand that there is much we can do on the other uh, side of the spectrum, the other fifty percent, you know, like. Uh, and that has to do with upbringing and psychology, for example, and uh, you know references that you might have and influences, you know, the things that happen to you, behavior, and all of that. So that means that we can focus on those things, right? We can learn about those things, how those things may influence who we are, and then I think we can definitely uh, help our learners and ourselves become better learners, you know, more effective learners. And that's what I I would say to parents and anyone who wants to understand how learning takes place. First, remember that a lot of it is out of your hands because it's genetic, you know, and of course you can influence uh, turning on and off the genes because of the environment, sure, but many things are just out of your hands, right? But then there are things you can learn that deal with psychology and social psychology, cognitive psychology, and it has to do with how you uh inspire or encourage or you know promote certain things in the learning environment and those things will have an impact on learning right so learn that and then and then start from there you know and then you can go on right
0: well what i liked in your article is obviously we're looking at something from a different perspective but also the fact uh, that you use diagrams and frameworks as a key component to break this down. And, yes. you know, I, I mentioned Greg Link in the in the um, back when I was yep. recording how he commented on LinkedIn. And it just made me remember something when I went to ask uh, him for some advice when I was putting some of my books out into the world, he said, Are the concepts in your book clear like covey's seven habits he's like what are the concepts that you want to teach and i thought about it and it made me really think about the framework and what i wanted to say and how i wanted to say it and i never forgot that and that's why we picked the six sel competencies to launch this podcast it was almost like that was the framework pick these six competencies So how did you take all the theories and frameworks connected to learning, like everyone that I've ever known that's connected to learning, you've mentioned their research and then how did you compare it to the cosmos? So (laughs) how did you even get there?
1: Yeah, that that was a very uh, hard process. I, I have to be honest about that. So if you go to my blog, you will see that at some point I was actually drawing uh the concentric circles on a wall i have a a huge wall and i painted it black like a blackboard wall and then i I got some chalk and i started drawing there because i I got a lot of different um you know when i started i had a probably a post-it and i started sketching something and i said this is too small then i got an a4 sheet of paper and i started drawing a couple of things that's small i need something bigger and then I ended up doing that on the wall, but it was really, um, uh, a process of really going back to my, uh, the literature that I had read for my master's and the things that I was, uh, studying and, uh, talking about in different webinars. And then I realized that we normally just talk about cognition. So when we're, uh, teachers, educators, um, and how we assess our students' performance, it's really about attention and memory. If we think about it. So how much they were able to pay attention, how much they memorized and how much they were able to express, you know, maybe there was a test or something. And, and that's really attention and memory. And that's the first, you know, you have the self, which is the core uh, sphere, because, you know, our students have to be aware. It's, it's related to self-awareness, for example, in the, you know, the six uh, realms or competencies of, of self. And then from self, you go to cognition, because cognition is probably one of the most important things when it comes to learning, because if there's no attention in memory, and those are cognitive processes, there's no learning. We need to pay attention to stimuli and then uh, memorize those things, hold those things in our working memory and then consolidate as long-term memory. So those are essential, like um, pretty much the conditions that we have on planet earth for life to thrive, right? Without those things, there is no life basically. So without those aspects of cognition, there's no learning, but then you move on. And um, nowadays in recent educational debates, we've been talking more and more about how emotions are very important and they're a very important part of the process, right? So the emotional sphere is the one that comes next because we have many people talking about emotions. And then I thought maybe this has a lot to do with the climate you know, think about uh, a planet and all of the the intricacies and everything that has to do with the climate. And and now people are talking about global warming, for example. And then, so if if the climate is not right, also, this is going to affect life as well, right? And then I said, so this, when I I thought about those things, for some reason, everything kind of made sense in my my brain. (laughs) I was, you know, sketching. And then you know, I then I went further. Okay, so what's the next one? And then I started thinking about okay, but um, so students they have certain attitudes and beliefs about learning. Uh, they so they will sometimes they believe that they can learn well. Sometimes they actually think that their their capacity is limited by something, and that will have uh, an impact on how they learn. And then I, st- I started thinking about growth mindset and metacognition, for example and uh self-efficacy that that's also related to cell in a way it's it's there and then uh and then i started moving away from the student in the center so basically i started thinking about motivation and that's something that comes from the student because we have intrinsic motivation but we also have extrinsic motivation so we have teachers and educators who can do that who can motivate their students and then i went further you know learning design structure policy and all of that because i felt like uh there are things that are very distant from our own reality they're you know like policy making for example that they're top-down processes but they will have an influence on what we do in the classroom Mm -hmm. so standardized testing for example high stakes uh testing that's that's policy and it comes all the way from it's like the galaxy level you know, it's so far away, but it's going to determine the things that we do in the classroom to get our students to pass the tests and then and, and maybe get funding for our school, depending on their performance. Right. So I think we have to be aware of this cosmos. It's, it's complex. Mm-hmm. There are so many different layers, but um, I invite people to explore little by little, you know, just like an astronaut so you go from this level to the next and 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 so on and then maybe after a couple of months or a year maybe a year after you know you're very familiar with all of those theories and then uh this will have a positive impact on your practice right
0: there's a lot to what you just said and i'll put that planetary level diagram in the show notes where you go from self to cognitive to emotional each level has so many educational theories and frameworks within it. I I was just blown away with with this when I saw it. And I was carrying your article around the whole weekend and and (laughs) making notes. And now that I see your process, I can imagine your chalkboard. That would be really cool because I've seen on your website, you've got um, post-it notes. And when you come in and work with schools, you've got these great, ideas. And, and that's what I've been doing in this office. I've got big um, posters all over the wall with post-its and you write yeah. ideas and you think, and you tapped into pretty much, I feel like everything we've been talking about on this podcast, just from this different angle. And as as you were just talking, I was thinking about you know the planet and yeah. how we're all connected and how There's a lot to it. And then you talked about policy. And then I thought, oh, how do we make change in our educational system? It seems so far out there, right? So far out there. But definitely how, how does change happen with all of this?
1: Yeah, that's, you know, that's a tough question, I think. But if you think about um, policy has to do with uh, the environment, let's say the context uh, of uh, planets, you know, so when, when I'm at, so I actually have a mug here with the learning cosmos. Oh, know? my
0: gosh, that's awesome. <laughs> that's
1: I have funny. a mug and I have the... the uh, the magazine. So this is the magazine. Oh, wonderful! So routes magazine, and then when you look at the at the illustration, and you see the different layers and everything, and you will see that context and resources. That's the 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 outermost you know, layer that is really far, and that's where you get uh, policy. And uh, you know the reason why our planet has life and our planet is is, is thriving, let's say, is because of our position in the solar system, the distance from the sun, you know, uh, plankton and and bacteria and so many other things. And if we change that position, if it was, I don't know, slightly closer to uh, the sun, like Venus, for example, there probably there wouldn't be any life on this planet. Like there's no life in Venus, uh, as far as we know, right? And I think that's what policy can do. It can kind of put the planet closer or further from the sun, right? So, because it's the environment that surrounds the planet. But then once you are locked in, in a good position, you know, you are, where you should be, the things that we do on the planet, inside the planet will count a lot as well. Because you know policy will only basically uh, you know make sure will put us somewhere uh, in the solar system and then we are going to revolve around the Sun, a star, and we're going to interact with other planets. But I think that the stuff that we do inside is very important. and uh, if we understand how learning take takes place from a cognitive emotional perspective, and we can use that despite... What policy tells us to do, right? I think we can make change, right? But we can also pressure our, you know, uh, politicians, for example, for better practices. And I think uh, one of the things that we we should be doing, and we don't do, and and this is especially true in Brazil, is that uh, we don't have experts, people who actually know about education and how education should work, you know uh, in, in positions in the government where they can make decisions and say, Hey, this is not the best way to, to go about this. So we have people who are politicians, maybe who don't know anything about education and they don't have their staff doesn't know much about education. And and I think that's one of my biggest concerns, you know, we need to get people who understand those things to, to make policy and, um, in a way that will benefit everyone. But we have, uh, for example, everywhere in the world, we have uh, a major obstacle, I think, and that's standardized testing. And and so one of the things about standardized testing is that you're treating every student as if they were exactly the same planet and they're different planets, you know. Mm. And then I I feel like one of the things we can do is uh, even if we have to take those tests, if we have to apply them, the students have to take them. We also have to include stuff that will basically nurture or or promote how different they are. So individualize them. So we, we have to work with portfolios, for example. We have to work with differentiation, personalization, and all of that. And that's part of the learning cosmos. So I think there are different levels. We can work on the planetary level, trying to make our students better learners, more efficient learners, and we can also work at the intergalactic level and, and try to pressure for you know, our governments for change, for effective change, you know so that maybe we don't have to fight against all the odds all the time so that we can make our students learn more effectively, right?
0: True, and is all I could think about when you were talking was um, not having people running our educational decisions with a background in education because i remember yeah. i remember seeing something years ago where howard gardner was um perhaps going to run for one of the positions in education in our country leading oh. and I, I i was dying i thought this is great i actually
1: emailed, that would be exciting. Yeah.
0: <laughs> i know i emailed yeah. him years ago um probably around yeah. 2008 when i first found out about multiple intelligence and asked him some questions and he wrote back and and you know yeah. was like very responsive and i thought wouldn't it be amazing to have someone who had such a solid understanding of how students learn um uh, mm-hmm. making the decisions about education but that's not just how it works and um definitely. we could yeah, just yeah. get bogged down into the politics of it but um i do see a change i just don't know if it's ever going to be in our lifetime um you mm-hmm. know of how things have gone since you know we were we were in school now with social yeah. emotional learning in schools now and
1: definitely and- that's and- one of the major changes actually I, I, I like the fact that we are discussing much more nowadays, you know, the role of emotions, emotion regulation, self-efficacy, social and emotional learning, because um, many decades ago, it was not even uh, on the table, I guess, right? Nobody talked about it, right? And that's, that's kind of sad, I think.
0: I know, as as, as I'm looking at my next question for you, so you compare the cognitive sphere to Earth's conditions. To support life, like, and you say the presence of liquid water or breathable air. And I've got a diagram where you've got self. And I just yeah. thought, so do you mean that self awareness or our motivation, attitudes, beliefs, and emotional and cognitive skills is integral for us, like water and air is to the planet? Is that what you mean with that?
1: Yeah, I, I suppose what I mean by, you know, uh, the cognitive sphere being, uh, similar to the conditions that are needed for life to thrive on a planet right so if you like you mentioned oxygen you know breathable air and and drinkable water and all of that is that without cognition there is no learning and without those conditions there's no life on the planet and self in that case would be pretty much like the core of the planet we we if we want to look at our students and understand that every student is very different they have their own ideas of of, of self-identity, for example, self-awareness. And uh, one of the things that I like very much about the cell uh, competencies with self-awareness and and, uh, self-management, for example, is that it comes from within. And this is something that, because we normally label students in educational settings and and it's an an external uh, 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 agent, let's say us, just telling students what they are, Labeling them, and then uh, I think that becomes a self-fulfilling prop- prophecy. Many times, you tell a student that they are they are this; they cannot reach a certain level. They believe that, and they get stuck. So I feel like um, self in 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 the illustration of the learning cosmos is really understanding that students are unique individuals, just like planets. Planets are very very different. If if we think about Uh, our planet and Jupiter, for example, you know, uh, Jupiter is more than a thousand times bigger than planet earth, but most of it is just gas, right? If you think of, and and it's massive and because of Jupiter, we are protected in a way because there's an asteroid belt and you know, if, if it were not for, uh, Jupiter's gravitational pull, for example, we would be bombarded by asteroids all the time, possibly. And uh, even though Jupiter doesn't have any life, as far as we know, Jupiter has a bunch of moons. You know, there's I think Jupiter is the planet with the most moons in the solar system. And maybe there's life there. And so there's so much to explore. And then I like this idea of self being the, the identity of the planet as it is the identity of our students. And then they have to explore themselves, you know, uh, from within to understand what triggers, you know, their their engagement and how they respond to certain uh, situations. What kind of emotions they, they experience when they're going through something, and uh, you know uh, how far they can go and and how much effort they want to put into you know uh, accomplishing things and all of that. And I think that the self is is really that understanding that the key characteristics of what makes that planet or what makes the student you know what makes them tick for example and i like that because i feel like we have to spend more time understanding the self of our students than you know just uh, curating content and because it doesn't really matter if you're trying to teach something to a student that doesn't have certain elements that we have to nurture you know maybe the the content will not matter that much because they will not be able to pay attention they will not be able to focus they will not be able to reflect so then you have to understand the self
0: so when when you were talking there and you were talking about how important self-awareness it's actually the most Well, it was until a couple took over, but when I first launched, it was the most downloaded SEL competency. Everyone wants to know what Mm self-awareness, how do we improve it? But then when you compared it to the earth's conditions to support life, it's so important like oxygen and water Then I thought about how important nutrition is for our students. It just hit me while you were talking that it's not just self-awareness, it's now we've got to nourish our students with the proper nutrients before school what are they getting in the the cafeteria at lunch and then what are we as parents feeding them you know a, after school um to give them the right conditions
1: yeah uh you know i i was teaching a class i think last week about the brain i actually have a a, a brain here like a the right hemisphere of the brain. And and I talk about it all the time, the the physiology of the brain. And, um, and I I remember telling my students, and they were in awe, um, because I said, our brains weigh around 1.3, 1.5 kilos, or something like that. I'm not sure how much that would be in pounds. And uh, they probably consume most, you know, like, probably around 25% of all our calorie intake, you know, like, it, it so it, it, it needs a lot of energy to function right? right so that's you know like a quarter of all the, the energy that we have is consumed by the brain and when I, and when people realize that uh you know let's say a student goes to class and they haven't had a breakfast or something like that they cannot pay attention as simple it's physiological you know if they're hungry Uh, They're working at, let's say, uh, a subcortical level, right? So, when when we think about the the cortex and the area that processes information, you know, coming from the environment and everything. So, you also have the inner areas that we call subcortical areas, and the limbic system is there. And whenever students are hungry or uh, they feel threatened, you know, or something is wrong, something is, is, they cannot pay attention you know, they can pay attention effectively because they first have to meet those needs because they're very important physiological or even social needs, you know, connection and all of that so that they can um, get to their higher cognitive functions. Otherwise, you know, it doesn't work. So yes, definitely. I think a lot of things we we used to think about education, they they just they don't hold true anymore you know it's not about going to the classroom and being exposed to content and repeating as many times as possible but it's really being there with the, the the proper conditions you know for you to actually learn so if you're there and you're starving if you are if you're experiencing some very i don't know you're going through a very tough uh, period in your life you know so there's this trauma emotional uh, state trauma yeah.
0: is big trauma big
1: loss for example you can't pay attention Yep.
0: so everything you're saying here is vast like the universe there's a lot yes being a teacher in the classroom just like there's a lot to the universe so i can see your connections which i think is is brilliant how you made this the, the well connection. thank
1: you <laughs> yeah like i said i i you know one of the things that i i've I've, uh, I've heard a couple of times is that i have this synthesizing mind. You know, I really like to look at different contributions and, and, and try to work out something that combines them in a way that, that is logical, I think. And, and with the learning cosmos, I, I definitely felt like, you know, it's I, I'm very proud of, of, of uh, the article I wrote, actually. I remember I read, you know, I read it so many times because, you know, when I was writing, but you know, a couple of weeks ago, I was having breakfast, and I had my Learning Cosmos mug, and I got the magazine, and I was rereading it, and I felt like, wow, this is a really great article. It was probably the best article I've ever written because, because the the connections they kind of they were there. You know, I I saw the connections, I made the connections, and I think it worked really really well. So I was very proud. I, I mean, I'm not trying to 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 brag or anything, but it was just it's something that that kind of just happened, you know, it was yeah. the connections were made, right? I know yes.
0: exactly what you mean by that. And yeah. it it's like, it's your life's work is seen in a different way. Yeah. And now the goal is that you've got to get it out to, you know, maybe help other people expand their thinking in a different way. And then that's when you're making a global impact with what you created, that's Definitely, really what yeah. we're here for, right? We're here to yeah. help, the, I mean, help each
1: other. I there, mean, there are many things coming out of the learning cosmos now. I've been doing some um, teacher training programs. I've actually um, uh, created a, a course about the learning cosmos. I'm writing a book about the learning cosmos with, you know, I'm gonna explore every sphere. Uh, I'm gonna give practical examples of how you can tap into the, the the sphere and the learning principles. I might even do something like create an app for teachers who want to explore, you know, like, okay, I want some tips about the cognitive sphere. So you go there, yeah. and there are tips of how to learn. And, and so this is something that is it's going to be my life's work, I think, because it's, it's going to take a very long time, I guess, for me to get all of those things done, you know.
0: Which, which is what I noticed when I was making the questions I thought there's so many different angles that we could go Often, even in conversation. So I feel like we've covered self awareness really well um, yeah. and compared it to the earth and how important it is bringing in uh, all aspects of learning. Could we go to self regulation next? Um, and yep. you've got your research on emotional intelligence that was popularized by Daniel Goleman and then emotional regulation. And then you talked about Lisa, uh, Feldman Barrett. Yep.
1: So
0: could we go there next? Um, what, where does emotion regulation and self-regulation fit in the cosmos?
1: yes uh that's that's uh, a very important uh, sphere the emotional sphere and uh, and also the the next one the attitudes and belief sphere because it, it deals with um uh, mainly self-efficacy for example and uh, understanding how to learn learning how to learn metacognition but if you think about self-regulation um an author that comes to mind is uh, Stuart Schenker, for example i don't uh quote him there in the learning cosmos but he's part of that emotion regulation the theory of constructed emotion by by lisa barrett um uh emotional intelligence daniel Goldman, because we need you know when uh, researchers talk about learning uh there's always somebody you know we always mention or go through executive functions right they are higher functions in the brain And we normally classify them like we have three main groups or three main categories. And the first one is uh, updating knowledge or working memory, right? The second one is switching or uh, cognitive flexibility. And the third one is inhibiting or inhibitory control. And that has a lot to do with self-regulation, inhibiting distractions and behaviors and reframing behaviors and all of that and we understand that those things are related related to the maturation of our prefrontal cortex and that that takes you know almost 3 decades of our lives you know because uh, we used to think that we were uh, teenagers till 18 we are teenagers till around 27 now you know because our brains are not fully matured yet mm-hmm. so if you think about self regulation it is it's such an important skill that will probably, you know, there, it's a great predictor actually of how success, successful you will be in life. Uh, one of the most referenced uh, tests ever is the marshmallow test, right? So we know, we've, we've studied psychology, we know that. And that's a great predictor of how successful those kids will be because they have to self-regulate. They have to control their impulses, their emotions, so that they can achieve a goal. And I think that's exactly how we have to look at it at, at, you know, at a school, you know, an educational setting. We have to not only teach content and and skills and and things like that, but we have to help our students become better at self-regulation, better uh, users of self-regulation, let's say. So they have to be able to, okay, this is not the time for me to do this. Now I have to focus. Okay, I have, um, I'm going through a very difficult emotional uh, situation right now, but I have to find the way, a way to control that. It's, it's, you can never suppress that. It, you know, it it, it doesn't go away, but you can control that. You can't separate cognition and emotion. They're, they're intertwined. But people who are uh, self efficacious, who can self regulate effectively, they can kind of, put that in the background so that you can achieve your goals and then you can go home and grieve and and mourn and and, then do all of those things because we need to be functional in society.
0: There's so many different strategies for each one of the competencies and then you've put it in a framework to help us to think about really how complex this all is, but I want to keep it simple. And I like how you compare it to, you know, the the different conditions on the earth. I'm just thinking about next uh, is our attitudes and beliefs. My next question is attitudes and beliefs. And to me, it kind of goes with the growth mindset. Um, when I definitely. was creating those six competencies I added growth mindset because I thought Carol Dweck's work is so important for us to understand
1: most definitely yeah. and
0: and include and so then if we could go next to how our attitudes and beliefs about learning how do they connect to to the earth and the cosmos
1: yeah so i I feel that um in many educational settings we have certain beliefs about learning that are outdated you know we've been replicating the same old same old formula let's say because we learn that way our teachers learn that way their teachers learn that way and um and that means that uh, we might have uh the wrong idea about how learning takes place one of the ideas we have about learning is that we, we need um, that we, we can take in lots and lots of content and, that, and then that we'll, we'll have learned it. Uh, it doesn't really happen like that. We need to space out our studies. We have to revisit certain things. So that's one of, one of the things. So we don't know how to study very effectively. We, we might not know what are the best strategies for us, you know, individually and even in the classroom with the teachers and the peers and everybody to study well. And we also have certain attitudes toward learning uh, that are based on how much we believe we can learn. And that has to do with growth mindset, as you said. So Carol Dweck's book, you know, um, Mindset, the New Psychology of, of Success, which is a great book. And she published some papers with Jaeger. Uh, uh, there's this wonderful author nowadays who, who kind of touches on growth mindset. Angela Lee Duckworth, she (laughs) talks about grit, right? And it's a form of of growth mindset. So we need to understand that many times our students don't learn effectively because they believe they can't, Mm -hmm. and for whatever reason. And and, and it might be just in their heads, you know? And, um, And they don't even put in the effort that is needed for learning to happen. And if they don't know how much effort they have to put in, how much they already know, their prior knowledge, um, what are the strategies and resources available to them, they will not learn effectively. And I think that's what we have to do with attitudes and beliefs. We can show our students that there are better ways to learn. There are different strategies. They can get different resources and they have to believe uh, that they can. That's very, it's essential. Otherwise, they will not even start. They won't even try, right? Mm -hmm. But there are many obstacles there. I think as teachers, as educators, we also have to change our attitudes and beliefs because many times, because we label somebody. So we uh, we say this student will never learn, right? And it's funny that many times, if you, I don't know, if you could follow up and see where they are 10, 20 years after, they're very successful. They found something to do, right? And then uh, I, I remember Jamie Oliver. I'm, I'm a big fan of Jamie Oliver's... Uh, Cooking shows, you know, and I have a bunch of cooking books here. And he was uh, dyslexic, so he he was diagnosed as a dyslexic kid. Uh, many of his teachers said he's not going to do anything really important in life because he can't. And he's a you know nowadays he's got so many shows everywhere on TV. He's published so many cooking books, right? Uh, he's incredibly successful. He's just you know he just had to find his niche, I think. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's what all it takes, we have to help our students realize that maybe they will um, struggle because it's something that they don't like, they're not interested in, but they will find something. As long as they keep their minds open and they work really hard, you know, they commit and uh, they make the effort. That's the idea.
0: Yeah, I remember someone, it was um, David Sousa's How the Brain Learns book. When I was talking to him, I interviewed him twice. In the first interview, I talked about how my youngest daughter was struggling with reading. And then it was three years later, I re-interviewed him, and I just updated him that it took a while. And he said, yeah, "Yeah, there's no such thing as, you know, can't learn. It's some students are slower learners, and it's having the patience. If you're a teacher or a parent to sit with them and think about well ha- what's happening at the brain level and give them different right. ideas strategies and resources so so if you were to think about this one um the growth mindset is there uh, how can we compare that to the cosmos
1: definitely i i, I thought of uh, you know not just growth mindset but attitudes and beliefs for example um i think they are what what i like to call our shared knowledge about how things work and you know if we look at the cosmos for example how the mechanics of the universe works basically so if, you know nowadays there's a there's a very um uh i'd say you know concerning movement to re- revise certain things that have been settled for for even millennia you know like the the shape of our planet, you know, for example. So there's a movement in that sense. So a lot of people uh, consider themselves flat earthers nowadays and uh, b- because they lack the basic understanding of the mechanics of the universe, you know. And there are cognitive biases at play as well. And when you think about growth mindset, attitudes, and beliefs, and all of that, it's really understanding and, you know, the basic principles of how learning takes place, I think. So uh, um, that's what we have to change. I think from every level, top down, you know, bottom up, if you think about policymaking, you know, the the politicians believe that learning happens this way, they will make policy addressing that, but that might be the wrong way. Parents who say, "You you should be doing this because this is how you learn. And maybe they don't know how learning takes place because they don't know anything about the science of learning. So, you know, just if you were going to send a rocket or a probe to Mars, as, as NASA has, you know, very recently, um, you have to understand physics. You know, there's no way you can, you can make that happen if you don't understand physics. So, you have to understand how learning takes place for you to have a growth mindset. You have to understand that the main property of the brain is something we call neuroplasticity. And neuroplasticity, basically says that you know the brain is always making connections right we are always making of course we we lose plasticity with time but we never lose everything you know our brains are always plastic there is a decline of course with time with age and everything which means that we can always learn you know this is the basic element of the brain Learning is what the brain does, you know. So, like you said, it might take a very long time, it might be very fast, depending on the learner, depending on their effort, depending on their prior knowledge, their access to resources. We have to believe those things. So we we if we want to have a growth mindset. And this is really it's documented. It's there's so much evidence showing that, right? Just like there's a lot of evidence showing that the planet is actually. B- round you know it's it's a sphere so yeah
0: well this is opening up my mind so much um it brought me to a part in your article where you talk about how we've got to design our lessons to allow our students to flourish um can you kind of talk a little bit about that because there's so much here it seems like i want to make it simple that That understanding all these theories and frameworks and the work that's done in the past can be simple and easy to use as we keep learning and perfecting and making it better for our students.
1: Yes, uh, uh, this is again very important because you know sometimes we are so we get our students' attention, they're engaged, you know, they're they're they have the right emotional state to learn they believe the right things about their learning, they are intrinsically motivated, but then we design a lesson that is bad and boring and it, and then we basically destroy the whole thing that comes before, right? So uh, one of, and, and, and this quote, you know, when you mentioned that we need to design a learning experience to allow our students to flourish, that comes from one of the greatest educators of all time, in my opinion, and who who, passed away quite recently, Sir Ken Robinson, Mm -hmm. who has a wonderful TED Talk, I think one of the most viewed TED Talks. And uh, the title of the TED Talk is Do Schools Kill Creativity, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, he's published a lot of books. And he says that schools were built on the premise that every student is like a, a cog or a mechanical device, you know, the assembly line. So it was built on you know, the, the, the ideas of industrialization, for example. There's an assembly line, and everybody does a little thing, adds a little bit. And then at the end you know, of the assembly line, you have the product. Every product is the same. You know, All the units are exactly the same. And that's, that's very far from what really happens in the classroom, because students are not the same thing. They're not a, a, a unit of a mechanical whatever you know, product. They are more like a farm and plants. And that's why he says flourish. And I love that verb because if if you plant the seeds of, you know, the same plant and when so, and then harvest will come. And then when you actually pick that out from, from the, 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 the ground, the soil, every plant will be a little different, you know, because it's organic. It's not mechanical. It's, It's that's the, the big difference there. So how can we design better learning environments? I added a couple of things. I think we need to have uh, flexibility. We need to have um, more learner-centered approaches, you know, or or student-centered approaches that it's not about us and how we we deliver content, but it's really how students understand and explore and discover things. Of course, direct instruction also works. We have to do that at some point. Uh, Extensive reading also works, but we also have to include desirable difficulties as um, classified by Robert Bjork. So Robert Bjork uh, is a cognitive psychologist from uh, the US, and uh, I think he worked at UCLA or UC San Diego at some point. And he says that whenever we are teaching, there has to be some difficulty, some challenge, so that the brain can actually learn effectively. And he talks about variation. He talks about testing, interleaving, and uh, retrieving, Right. so uh, spacing as well. So if you are not adding difficulty to how you teach your students and how they learn, it's going to be less effective. And I know it's kind of counterintuitive nowadays because everybody wants, the learning experience to be all about fun. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, I think it's very much like going to the gym, right? No pain, no gain. So there has to be a little difficulty there. Otherwise, it's not happening. If you, if you don't feel the, the, the lactic acid working on your muscle, you know, it's not, it, then I'm it's not working.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I think it came out in one of, my, uh, one of my interviews with Douglas Fisher and Nancy Fry. They called yeah. it productive struggle.
1: Yeah, there you go.
0: As we're thinking about this now, can we talk about the macrocosm versus the solar system level?
1: So when I designed the learning cosmos, I thought of um, the microcosm, uh, which is basically, uh, it it refers to the idea of genetics and epigenetics influencing how we learn. It's pretty much like the, you know, the realm of quantum mechanics nowadays, because it's the the physics of how tiny things work. Right, like atomic, subatomic level, and then we think of the planetary level that includes all of the things we've dis- we discussed. Uh, you know, cognitive, emotional, uh, attitudes and beliefs and motivational sphere. That's all part of the planetary level, because it's really uh, within the surroundings of our students. You know, and our students are the planet in here, right? And then as you move to the learning design uh arena like we've discussed so that's the solar system sort of it's the context where the planet is so inside the classrooms or the learning experience that's the solar system level because you know the interaction with different planets so the 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 resources you will find in that context will have an influence or an impact on how learning happens if you think about it like I said, you know, Jupiter is 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 uh, protecting us from bombarding, you know, asteroid bombarding. So if Jupiter didn't exist, maybe we we wouldn't exist, you know, maybe uh, or maybe life would be very different on this planet. Maybe there, you know, uh, we wouldn't be locked in in this position because of you know uh, the gravitational influence of all the planets in the solar system counts for us to be here, right? And then as you move away from the solar system, uh, you know, then you get to uh, intergalactic space, right? But, but basically what I call the macrocosm is from the solar system onwards, you know? because in physics, in astrophysics, macrocosm refers to the idea of uh, what I call the physics of the large. So you look at other planets, the solar system, uh, the space between stars and galaxies, and 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 possibly more, you know, solar systems around those those uh, stars. That's what you know. Neil deGrasse Tyson studies, for example, or uh, many other. Uh, you know, Stephen Hawking was was really interested in that. And this is really further. You know, if we're go- we're moving further away from our students now. So the solar system and the other things that that will come after we're moving away from the planet. So then it's not just about the planet anymore, it's about the the external forces there that influence uh, the planet. And uh, I feel like this is where we as educators, as, as teachers, as tutors, we have a lot of say there. It's our arena. Because that we're moving from, you know, the, the, the surroundings of the, stu- the student themselves, right? Their cognition, their emotions, their attitudes and beliefs and their motivation. And now we're talking about learning design. And that's what we do. As educators, we can design our lessons, right? And, and, then, uh, and then, of course, after the solar system level, when you get to the intergalactic or interstellar level between stars, then you don't have a lot of say anymore so much because it's about the school ideology, infrastructure, policy, even the government, right? Right. So maybe, I mean, you can pressure certain uh, aspects of that, but again, you don't have a lot of say. So I, I believe that those external forces are very important because they kind of, in a way, dictate what we do in the classroom. Think about the syllabus, you know, think about the curriculum that we normally follow in, in, in any given uh, educational setting. That's, kind of, that's pre-made, you know, it's, it, it, we adopt it. It's just, it falls on our lap, basically, it's top down. And, um, and that dictates what we are going to teach, in many cases, how we are going to teach and how students are going to be assessed. And that limits our power as educators, as creative people, to actually reach out and 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 you know help our students learn more effectively, so we have to understand those levels as well.
0: So while you were talking about those levels, I couldn't stop thinking about the competency of relationships. And- yes. And then I thought about systems theory. That um, it just came up actually on one of my recent interviews with Joshua Friedman, and he talked about, you know, the, the systems theory. And and you explain it well. I had never heard of this as a theory before. You bring out every single educational theory I've ever heard of and not heard <laughs> of in in this article. Yeah, so
1: that's good. <laughs>
0: it, yeah, you've got everything in here. It's it's very thorough. So. You talk about that impact Uh, and I couldn't stop thinking about the students in our classroom and all the influences that come before them before they get into the classroom to impact learning. And then you bring you keep bringing it out as you were talking about the world as they go out into the world, as they leave their schools. I remember one of the schools I was working at the students rarely left their area of the city. And they talked about that, how incredible it was when I would come in and talk about how I had just been on a plane, they're like, Where did you go? Because they don't go outside of the square they live in. Yeah. So can you talk about that a little bit, the importance of relationships as we extend Definitely. our students out into the world?
1: Yeah, so what I like about the competencies of, of, of cell is that, you know, the, the two first are more related to the self, pretty much like, you know, the planetary level. So you have self-awareness and self-management for example so it's you and yourself of course you know dealing with others sure but you know how you respond to that within yourself but then the next ones are more about your community right so it's a social awareness and uh, relationship skills and uh, a responsible dec- decision making right yeah. uh, and even uh, envisioning your future self like what you're going to be like in the future and I, and I think that's uh, exactly um, what I th- we need to focus on more. It's building good relationships because and, and being socially aware of people. Uh, empathy is, is big there, right? So we want uh, kids who, who are not only thinking about themselves. And, and, and I don't want uh, kids to be very competitive all the time, even though we know the world requires a lot of competition. But structured collaboration and and even compassion in that sense, because empathy is being able to put yourself in the shoes of others. But compassion is really understanding the other, even though you cannot put yourself in their shoes. You know, it's being kind to them, understanding that what they're feeling is something that you, you couldn't possibly comprehend, but deciding to help them either way. Right in it, it, a very, uh, in, in a way that relates to Buddhism, I think, you know, being compassionate towards uh, others. And then uh, in, when we have relationship skills, we are thinking about teamwork. We're thinking about communication. We're thinking about uh, solving conflict, for example, right? So all of those things are somehow present, I think, in, in the illustration of the learning cosmos, because we, you, You want people to be generous and kind and you want them to work together well, because this is what we are seeing now. Nowadays, for example, that, you know, there are so many bad things happening uh, uh, in the world because people cannot converse anymore. They cannot sit down and and have a a fruitful dialogue and then solve their differences, which has, uh, you know, responsible decision making has um, ethics, for example, and um, I think uh, problem solving is part of that as well. Uh, analyzing, you know, and, and, and accessing those uh, cognitive skills that are so important for you to be able to, to build bridges and not burn bridges, you know. So all of those things, they have to be part of our educational system. So that when the kids are trying to imagine what they are going to be like when they grow up, you know, their future selves they they choose to be kind they choose to be compassionate they choose to be problem solvers and leaders and and great communicators you know and people with empathy there is a theory in in psychology called tom uh theory of mind oh yeah that is um social psychology and and cognitive psychology they discuss a theory of mind and it's our incredible ability to read other people and we look at other people we can tell what they're feeling, because of their body language and facial expressions. And, and and even, you know, when people are going through a situation, we can actually put ourselves in that situation, and imagine what they're going through, right. So we have to use theory of mind more often, I think, to to connect with one another. And, uh, and I, you know, one of the things we do as educators is, oh, forget about your feelings right now I have to cover this topic today you know because this is going to be on the test That's right that's really bad right
0: right we've probably said that a million times right
1: a million times yeah I I mean I understand that we have to you know there's a syllabus I understand but I think sometimes um being supportive and and compassionate takes two minutes you know Mm -hmm. just listening so the students are struggling and they want to share something
0: Right, so uh, you can see how I created my questions to bring in the SEL competencies. And I think you really covered it well, how you've explained how learning is supported and can compare to the vast universe of the cosmos. And it is vast. And this topic is a powerfully deep one, which is why I wanted to have you on and go through it carefully. It, did I miss anything about your article that's important with these questions, how I've asked it?
1: I, I think you did a great job, Andrea. You know, I mean, I, I'm reflecting now. Uh, there's always so much to explore, you know, when, when when you think about the learning cosmos. Maybe I can read um, a passage, a very short one, that I think it was a great passage uh, at the end of, of, of the article that goes like this, you know. And, and, and I remember thinking about that and I said learning is beautifully intricate and we have only begun our voyage of self-discovery. The implications of our findings will shape generations to come. Our unmatched ability to learn has given us the tools to understand the universe and learning itself. And then I quoted uh, Carl Sagan, he says, somewhere some, something incredible is waiting to be known. And Albert Einstein, he says, two things are infinite, the universe and human stupidity. And I'm not sure about the universe. And, and I think that's it. It's an invitation to explore you know, and keep learning about learning in ourselves so we can be better people, better educators, better parents, better, better citizens of the world, right?
0: This was good. I've loved every minute of this. And and I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast and walking me through your article as it pertains to the cosmos to help us really think about learning and being lifelong learners and going and reading your article and perhaps mapping it out. How could we improve certain areas of our um, SEL competencies as we're teaching them to our students. How could we focus in and narrow in if you had some final thoughts for educators on how they're going to use your article, what would you say?
1: Well, I say, start small, right? I think, uh, uh it's very hard for you to take the cosmos as, as a whole, you know, because there's so many layers. And, uh, if you want to learn how to use the cosmos, the learning cosmos, start from the cognitive uh sphere you know and then there there are different principles there learn about those principles i have all all of the references in my article go to the references learn about attention engagement feedback and consolidation and then you move on to the next sphere then you learn about emotional intelligence emotion regulation and then the theory of constructed emotion and then you go to the next sphere you know it's uh, like I said. I think it's a journey. It's a voyage, you know, into the beautiful and complex uh, space or cosmos that we have out there. There's so much to be discovered, and and then you know reflect on your practice using the cosmos as as the foundation. I think, and then do I do this? Am I uh, thinking about my students' attention, engagement, consolidation? If I don't, how can I adjust things? How can I take those things into consideration? And then maybe, you know, if you're designing a a teacher training program for your school or something like that, go to the Cosmos and learn about those theories and principles and, and implement them, you know, use them to inspire this program of yours, right?
0: Well, your passion for learning shines through and you've opened up my mind. I want to thank you so much for taking me on this voyage into the learner's universe uh, for myself and for our listeners. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Andre. It was uh, an honor. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. To close out this episode, I do have some final thoughts to make Andre's ideas applicable in your life with whatever it is you're working on. I encourage you to download his article and see how you can apply his ideas to whatever it is that you're working on. This interview made me think back to when I asked one of my early influencers a question, something about how he overcomes challenge during difficult times, and his answer was so good that I saved it and I read it from time to time. He referred to the fact that any sort of problem is like a mental challenge that has to be overcome and he encourages others to look at the macro for the greater good not the micro. If you have something you're working on and challenges arise, see if you can step back and look at it from another angle. What can you see or learn from this new perspective? This is exactly what Andre did with his article, as he took us all on a voyage to analyze learning from the macro point of view, where he reminds us just how beautifully intricate learning is, and that we've only just begun our voyage of self-discovery.